You're listening to a resource from Alpine Bible Church. Alpine Bible Church exists to know Christ Jesus together and to make Him known. We are located in Sugar Creek, Ohio. For more information, visit our website at alpinebible.org. May Jesus be glorified in your life. Bibles with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I received an email this week from the New York Times, and the subject said, Understand more. In 2022, for just a dollar a week. That was a pretty big, pretty big promise. Um, but it got me thinking about our text today. You know, there, there's a lot of uh, promises like this out there, and this is not commentary in the New York Times. There's a lot of promises like that out there that would tell us that they would help us to understand things. They would help us to understand the world. Maybe it's for you, it's a YouTube channel that you watch. Maybe it's a news outlet. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's your grandma. <laughs> um, whoever it might be in your life that promises to help you to understand what's going on, help you to understand the world, help you to understand deep, important things. Um, this is a claim among many claims that tries to do that. Last week we talked about Uh, that Paul wants to make clear that the focus of Christian ministry, the focus of his ministry is the gospel. But here he continues in his letter to the Corinthian church and to us today that the sort of X factor, if you will, of how that is uh, effective is none other than the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the reason why he is the reason why the gospel is effective uh, as, at the, as the center point of Paul's ministry and as the center point of what our ministry should be, namely the gospel. It is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is who, as we'll find today, helps us to understand what God has revealed in his word. We only know God because we have the Holy Spirit. If we did not have the Holy Spirit, we would not know God. And so God's own powerful work through the person of the Holy Spirit helps us to know him. And so we don't need to pay a dollar a week. Uh, We have it freely. God gives us that through giving us himself, giving us his own spirit, that we might understand him and know him. And one of the dangers that we can face as um, particularly... uh, this is something that's a problem for this particular area, is we're very churched in this area. And you can know a lot of information about Jesus. You can know all the right answers to what is the gospel. You can even maybe quote some scripture and have some memorized, and you have all of that under your belt. But if that doesn't, that understanding doesn't turn and lead you to actual knowledge of God, and not just knowing about him, but knowing him, then you have a problem. Because it's not enough simply just to know about God. Rather, God calls you to know him. As you know, if you're married, as you know your spouse, you don't just know a bunch of information about your spouse, I hope. I hope you know some things about your spouse. But I also hope that you know them. And that there's just something that has taken place between you and them that you know them. Or your children the same way. Your family members the same way. Maybe close friends the same way. You know how this works from a human level. But all the much more. This is what God desires from us. is not simply that we just know about him, but that we know him. And the Holy Spirit is uh, what he gives to us. Rather, who he gives to us that we might be able to know him. Last week I said... I closed with sort of this summary statement from what we looked at in chapter 1. The focus of Christian ministry ought to be the gospel, the word of the cross. And I want to expand on that this week, and it goes like this. 
the focus of Christian ministry ought to be the preaching of the gospel, the word of the cross, relying on the illuminating and saving power of the Holy Spirit. I know that's a $5 sentence, but I'm going to say it several times throughout the morning so that you can remember it and think about what the point of what Paul is saying is. Because as I spent time just these two weeks to focus in on these two chapters, I think what Paul is getting after is helping the Corinthians and then us to know what should be the focus. What's, when you boil everything else down in what Christian ministry is, what should it be? And I think Paul wants to make clear the preaching of the gospel is central. He's talked about it as the word of the cross. And that is then relying on the illuminating and saving power of the Holy Spirit. I think that's what he's talking about today. And you can see this for yourself as we walk through this text together. Look with me, if you would, at 1 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 1. I'll read down through the chapter, and then we'll pray and dig in. The word says, And I... When I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But, as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this word that you've given to us. We thank you for your spirit that you've freely given to us, that we might understand, that we might know you, that we might see your glory here in the scriptures. I pray this morning, Lord, that your spirit would fill me, fill this place, fill your people, that we might understand, that we might see, and we might know you. Thank you, Lord, for this great mercy you've given to us through your spirit. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul continues, really, in chapter 2, the beginning here, with what he's was saying back in chapter 1. Remember how he came proclaiming? Look back at chapter 1, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul continues that same idea in chapter 2, verse 1, by saying, and this is what I did when I came to you, brothers and sisters. Paul, at one point, came... um, You can look at when Paul was actually amongst the Corinthians doing ministry in Acts 18. We won't go there for sake of time today. Uh, We've been there not too long ago when we walked through Acts on Sunday mornings, but you can remind yourself of that in what Paul is referring to. But when Paul came amongst the Corinthians, he's saying, And I, my own ministry, what I did, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He did not use 
lofty speech or worldly wisdom in his delivery. In other words, remember we talked about the sort of expectations that were there in that culture, that there were all these public speakers who were well-trained, well-educated, and people went to listen to them. And they had certain expectations about what they would say and how they would say it. And Paul was not interested in meeting those rhetorical expectations of his hearers. He was commanded otherwise by the Lord. Notice here he introduces this phrase, the testimony of God. We have yet another way to refer to the word of the cross, as Paul says elsewhere. The word of the cross as what he proclaimed, verse 18 of chapter 1, talking about the gospel, talking about the message that God sent Paul to share, the testimony of God now. Uh, The same word can be used as witness, the witness of God. With lofty speech or wisdom, that's not how Paul came proclaiming it. And so Paul reminds them this is the nature of his own ministry among them. When he was with them, this is not what he did. And so verse 2, he decided when he was with them to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul's message and his method collapsed into a singular focus, Jesus Christ and him crucified. At first glance, it's Worth mentioning that Paul is not saying that the only thing that he taught them was Jesus Christ and him crucified. He taught them many other things. And throughout the letter, even if you remember when we were in chapters 8 through 11, he's referring to all kinds of things that they had back and forth about. So Paul taught them many other things. But the singular focus of everything that he taught them um, would always be brought back to, to, to Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's saying, that's, that's the center of my message. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That, it's, it's an emphasis, right? And if you don't believe me, then look with me over at 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, right at the beginning. And Paul restates, this is just one place where he restates what he taught them. I want you to see this so that you can know that what I'm saying is true. Namely, that this is not the only thing that he taught them, but it's the focus of what he taught them. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now he's going to tell us what that gospel was. What did he say? What did he teach them? Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance, there, stop for a minute, that helps us to know this is his singular focus, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Okay, there's Christ crucified and was buried, verse 4, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And so, obviously, he talks about the resurrection as well of Christ, right? So that's inherent in the message. But the singular focus of What Paul had to say to them, going back to our text, is the death of Christ. Because without the death of Christ, there is no hope. There is no gospel. There is nothing for us without the death of Christ. The resurrection is obviously important, but there has to be a death in order for there to be a resurrection. There has to be, more importantly in God's eyes, there has to be a payment for sin. There has to be an atonement made. And that, of course, happened through the death of Christ. And so that's what Paul means, going back to our text, that he decided to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was his singular focus. Instead, as I said, this reveals Paul's main emphasis. Everything hinges off the death of Christ. Without the cross work of Jesus, there is nothing. Everything that we have as Christians is all hinged off of that. Paul says as much in his letter to the Ephesians that we've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And Christ earned that. He purchased that. He bought that for us through his own death. And so everything that we have, Christians, everything that we are as Christians, comes through the death of Christ. Interestingly, um, he uses the word know in verse 2. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is at least a clue to us that Paul was not uninterested in wisdom 
or in learning. Right? He's been hammering on wisdom, worldly wisdom, all in chapter 1, as we talked about last week. And you might get the impression that Paul is anti-learning, anti-wisdom, anti-knowing. <laughs> That's not the case at all. Uh, Paul wants them. He taught them. He's teaching them, right? What do you teach? Hopefully you teach knowledge. You teach information that they might know. So he wanted, though, this, this knowledge, what he did teach, to be focused on the things of God and the things that God would have him emphasize. There's a lot of things that we could know. There's a lot of things that we could talk about learning and knowing and growing in, right? But in church, God cares about what is done. God cares about what is taught, what is emphasized. And we're to do the things that God would have us do and say the things that God would have us say. And so that's why Paul emphasizes it's not some kind of anti-knowledge thing, uh, anti-intellectual stance of Paul or anything like that, no. But let's know the things that God wants us to know. And so that's Paul's emphasis. Verse 3. He's going to tell us something about the nature of his ministry amongst them, which is rather startling when you think about what they're so used to. They're so used to these bravado speakers, public speakers who are just polished and sharp and amazing and impressive and so on. And then Paul says this, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. You just stop there for a minute. I mean, that's not impressive to the world. You don't, if you watch YouTube or whatever else you do, if you watch TV and you watch somebody that is defined in this way, weak, fearful, trembling, you change the channel. Who, why would you want to watch this? Why would you want to pay any attention to someone who is standing before you delivering things in weakness and in fear and trembling? This isn't impressive to the world, Paul says. But this is the matter of how things were. And if you went back and looked at Acts 18, Paul made his way to Corinth uh, with all kinds of issues. And even what was happening in Corinth, there was all kinds of issues that were coming against him. And even what we find out later in Paul's writing to the Corinthians in his second letter, there were issues that Paul himself was dealing with. We don't know if it's health. We don't know what it was. It's the thorn in the flesh that he talks about. He pleaded three times to the Lord for him to take it away, and the Lord's answer was no. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so not only was Paul dealing with issues uh, external to him, but he had his own internal issues. He, his maybe body was not working as he wanted it to or whatever else. Something was off, and it resulted in him coming amongst them in weakness, fear, and trembling. He suffered among them as he was in ministry among them. Look back at Acts chapter 9. As we reflect on uh, Acts chapter 9 tells us about the conversion of Paul, then known as Saul. And it tells us something rather interesting. There's a really amazing scenario that the Lord orchestrates through bringing Saul to Ananias. This man who's going to come and sort of be really the first Christian discipler of Paul. I'm going to jump in the text at verse 13. The Lord has spoken to Ananias, instructing him about Saul. And Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call in your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Look at this. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Paul, through Ananias, this, this message I assume got back to Paul. This was going to be the tone of Paul's ministry. Paul I have much to do with you and through you, but you're going to suffer, and I'm going to show you how much you're going to suffer for the sake of my name. And so Paul's ministry was one of suffering. And so this is made evident to the Corinthians as he's with them. He's with them in weakness, fear, and trembling. And he goes on back in our text, verse 4, My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, 
but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. This does not mean that Paul spoke incoherent babble amongst them. So we hear that word plausible and we think about, well, it's reasonable, it makes sense. No, he's still referring to the same context of the culture, of the expectations. He's not interested in trying to wow them and impress them impress them with his wordsmithing. Instead, he is trying to be simple and plain to talk about the truths of the gospel. And so that they don't get, verse 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. To Paul, the worst thing that could have happened is after he spoke, they would have said, man, Paul is really something. That's the worst thing that would have happened for Paul. No, he wanted them to say, what a wonderful God we have. What a mighty God we have. He wanted people's faith to rest in God, not in men's wisdom. They didn't, he did not want people to walk away saying, Paul can really just eloquently just carry us along in this amazing message. And I, I, I was drawn to faith because Paul was so amazing. No, they, he wanted people to come to the end of his time of speaking and rest their faith in the power of God. Because if you remember, I said last week, Paul's mission was to preach the gospel and to do so according to the method that God intended. Because that is exactly how God desired to display his wisdom and his power. Through the gospel and through the message, uh, rather the method of proclamation, proclaiming that gospel. Here it is, uh, audience, and then God would work. Now, what's interesting is that he brings in the mention of the Spirit in verse 4. He's not talked about the Spirit much uh, particularly in what we talked about last week. But here he brings in that very same concept, um, topic rather, I should say, of the Spirit. Just as we learned before, uh, the word of the cross, as I just said, the gospel is God's display of his wisdom and power. And so now we understand, the, as I mentioned at the beginning, the sort of the X factor of how that wisdom and power is displayed. It's through the Spirit. It's by the Spirit. The proclamation of the gospel is a display of the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit. When you and I, whatever day that was, when you and I heard the gospel for the first time, likely it was not the first time that you heard the gospel, but it was the first time that you heard it, if you understand what I mean. People probably told you the gospel at many different times, perhaps before you actually heard it, but the day that you really heard it, the Holy Spirit worked so that you might hear it, so that you might, might no longer be deaf, that you might no longer be blind, that you might hear it and see it and know it. And that's true. I want that. I believe that. The Corinthians coming to faith. He's writing to a church. This is what's interesting. He's writing to a church full of believers. They're a mess, but they're believers. And so that, in and of itself, is evidence that Paul's Message and his method were effective. So you could say, well, I don't, I don't know that, you know, I understand this is how Paul thinks about it. Or, you know, I don't know if that really works. I mean, don't we have to kind of change things, Nick? Don't we have to kind of focus things more so on what really grabs people's attention? Paul was with them in weakness and fear and trembling. And he told them the gospel and he proclaimed it plainly to them. And God saved a whole bunch of people. And now there's the Corinthian church. And so you tell me, was it effective? Of course it was effective. And it was effective because the Holy Spirit attended to Paul's preaching. One um, old Puritan preacher said it this way, In the preaching of the sermon, two things are required. The hiding of human wisdom and the demonstration or showing of the Spirit. Two things are required in a sermon, this preacher said. The hiding of human wisdom. Nobody, that, that's not the main point. Nobody needs to see that. The other one is the demonstration or showing of the Spirit. And that's exactly something that Paul is talking about in his ministry, in his preaching. The demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And this is the wonderful thing, friends. There's no like button or switch that any of us have to say, Okay, Spirit, act, move, work. <laughs> no, we don't have any control over that. But what God calls us to do is to proclaim the gospel and to do it according to the method that he has set forth, and he'll work at his own mercy and at his own desire. 
And he comes and works, and works through someone that is with them in weakness and fear and trembling. Remember, I mean, we talked a little bit last week about this whole uh, tradition that was common amongst their culture at this time, the speakers that would speak, the public speakers and so on. You see, these speakers that, that would go and speak to various audiences, their whole uh, bent was to try to elicit faith or belief from their hearers and whatever their message was. It's kind of like the equivalent of an infomercial. If you've ever been sick or you just get really bored and you spend the night just watching TV for endless amounts of time, you start thinking that you need to buy a new juicer or that you need to buy some new thing that's going to clean your floors like nothing before, and you just kind of get into this long stint of infomercials. And it's, they're designed to sell you that, to, to get you to the end where you're ready. Well, just four payments of 1995. This is great. And they'll send me another one if I buy, if I call now. Like, that's the point. But these speakers were no different. They were meant to bring you to a place of, of decision, a place of, and, and not even decision, but of belief and faith. And I believe in what this guy's saying. And that's their whole bent. And it was all based on their rhetorical skill and their ability. Paul, as a contrast, more importantly God, does not desire for the preaching of the gospel to be done in such a way. Because it would all hang on the ability and wisdom and efforts of human beings. So that at the end of the message, everybody goes, wow, that was an amazing human display of human wisdom and and effort and ability and thought and whatever else. No, Paul's ministry is highlighted by his weakness and focused on a message that really doesn't impress the world. Your God died? How is that impressive? And I have before me a guy who is weak and sickly and fearful and trembling telling me this message. How is this impressive? God desires for this kind of thing to happen because the Holy Spirit attends to and uses such efforts. Then God receives the trust and the belief of the hearers and not men. Because this, all that's happening, even right now, friends, is meant to direct you to God. It's meant to focus your eyes in on what God has said, who God is, because he's revealed himself. And this is the means by which he has decided that you might come to hear more about him and grow in him and come to maybe be introduced to him for the first time today. So that you would look to God. Faith in the power of God, not in the wisdom of men. Thus, human wisdom empties the cross of Christ, as Paul said earlier. One preacher has said, while simplicity maintains the glory of the cross of Christ, persuasive human words establishes faith on the sands of human wisdom, where it will soon be ruined, while the simplicity of the apostolic teaching built on the rock of divine power will continue unmoved amid all the temptations and supernatural attacks of Satan the world, and the flesh. Did you catch what he said? Persuasive human words establishes faith on the sands of human wisdom where it will soon be ruined. But the simplicity of the apostolic teaching built on the rock of divine power will continue unmoved amidst anything that will come against it. So how can we stand firm? We're going, you're going to just fall away if you rely on the teaching of human wisdom. It's like sand. It won't last because eventually it's going to be knocked over, blown over. It's going to crumble. But when the simplicity of the apostolic teaching, which is encased for us here in the scriptures, when that is delivered to people, the Holy Spirit attends to that and it is built on a rock. And no matter what comes your way, you will not be movable. Don't you want that? Don't you want to not be movable? Don't you want to not be shaken by all the things that come your way? And through the preaching and understanding of the gospel, we can have that kind of foundation that we can stand upon so that our faith rests not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, Paul's going to turn here, starting at verse 6, 
and talk about wisdom in a different way. You see, all along this, we might think Paul is just has a lot of negative things to say about wisdom. Well, he has a lot of negative things to say about worldly wisdom. But the Bible has a lot to say about God's wisdom. There are entire sections, entire books that exist that are we call wisdom books. Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, to name a few. So God, God does not not care about wisdom. But among believers, we find here, starting at verse 6, Paul did share the wisdom of God. And he did it in words given by the Holy Spirit. This is what we would refer to as the Scriptures, the revelation of Scripture. So he did share the wisdom of God in words given by the Holy Spirit. And the ability to understand those words was given to the hearers by the Spirit. So Paul shared words given by the Holy Spirit, the Scriptures. And the ability for his hearers to understand those words came from the Spirit as well. That's what he's saying in this next section. Verse 6, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Paul did not totally dispense of wisdom in his ministry. He imparted or taught God's wisdom to God's people. The mature are the us who are being saved. Back in verse 18 of chapter 1. That's who he's talking about. That's who the mature are. Among the mature, among Christians, he does impart wisdom. He does teach wisdom. And it's God's wisdom. They're the ones whom God has chosen to reveal himself to. Verses 27, 28, and 29 of chapter 1. The weak, right? The foolish of this world. Those who are not. These are the mature in God's eyes. They are believers. Now he mentions the rulers of this age in verse 6 there. See that? He mentions it, uh, them a few times. There's all kinds of conjecture about who these people are. It's a broad term meant to encase all kinds of different sorts of people. Those who are uh, be against God. And verse 8 gives us a clue about this. Look at verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So this, the rulers of this age seem to be people who are against the Lord, and they are all connected into his crucifixion. So the rulers of this age is this broad term meant for us to understand those who are against the Lord those associated with the world, those who trust in worldly wisdom, the perishing who deem the word of the cross folly, chapter 1, verse 18. They are, as it says in verse 6, doomed to pass away, which is the same thing as perishing. And so he goes on, verse 7, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Here's the great thing. It's not a secret anymore. Here it is. This is it. This is not talking about some kind of secret knowledge that only Paul has and that we got to try to unlock. And if you have the right numbers and weird YouTube video guy that tells you how to understand it, you're going to know it. No, this is talking about a secret hidden wisdom that is now revealed. Here it is. It's in the scriptures. And that secret, that hidden wisdom is the gospel. Here it is, Paul says. I impart, we impart, a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Brian talked about this at the start. But this is what he's talking about. He's saying from all eternity God has intended to do the gospel, if you will. God has intended to send his son that he might live a perfect life. That he might do that in our place. That he might die in our place for our sins. That he might be buried and rise again on the third day. So that all of God's people could be saved. This was decreed before the ages. Look at what that says, end of verse 7. For our glory. It's not often that you see in the scriptures something that talks about us receiving glory. And this is a sharing in God's glory. It's not that we are glorious. But we are now glorified as believers because of Christ. And we get to share in this glory that he has brought about through the Lord Jesus. And so Paul's ministry is to impart or teach this secret hidden wisdom of God. We could talk about it as the word, of cro- the word of the cross, the gospel, Christ crucified, and all that it entails and implies. And if you're interested, you can read a lot more about what Paul says about this mystery, this hidden secret will of God in Ephesians. It's in chapter 1 and in chapter 3, all over the place. 
We don't have time to go there, but I would encourage you to do so if you're interested. Verse 8, none of the rulers of this age understood this. They don't understand the gospel. Why? Because the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And also, back in chapter 1, verse 21, remember this? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. So the world's own wisdom doesn't lead them to God. And that was God's wisdom that that didn't work that way. Talked about that last week. So the rulers of this age, they don't understand this. They don't understand the gospel. If they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But this is, this is the noodle baker of God's work. That he intended for them to not know it so that Christ could be put to death. Because if Christ wasn't put to death, there's no salvation. There's no gospel. There's no good news. And so there was a blindness by many. Some, I, I can remember having a conversation with someone one time after the movie The Passion of Christ came out. And this particular person was telling me just terrible what they did to him. It's terrible that they didn't understand. Why did this have to happen? And this particular person at this particular time was not a believer. He was on his way. But I told him, well, that was the point. They didn't understand. We would have done the same thing. And simply watching that movie or thinking about this story of, the, of Christ crucified, if we go to it, it's just terrible what they did. If they just would have understood, it would have been okay. No! It's actually good that they didn't understand so that he would be put to death. The worst thing that's ever happened, Christ's death, is the best thing that's ever happened. And this is the anomaly of God's mercy and grace shown to us through his Son. And so, had they understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But had they not crucified the Lord of glory, there would be no gospel. And so, they were blinded and acting in their blindness. Verse 9, Paul appeals once again to the Old Testament. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. This is sort of an amalgamation of a few different Old Testament texts, but the verse most closely resembles Isaiah 64, verse 4. As I said last week, it seems like Paul was reading Isaiah as he's writing to the Corinthians, because Isaiah is all over the place as he's writing to them, thinking about these texts. The Spirit is giving him these texts to remember. In that great chapter, Isaiah 64, the prophet Isaiah is exalting in God, calling on God to come down and bring His glory to bear on the earth and His people. And Paul picks up on this context and is saying that it's through the proclamation of the gospel, God is astonishing people with what no eye has seen, with what no ear has heard, and no heart of man could have possibly imagined. God is preparing great things for those who love Him, and He's done this in the gospel. Paul is saying that is what Isaiah 64 is about. That is what is being, that was expected, that the, that the prophet Isaiah was seeing dimly in the future. This is it. It's the gospel. This is what nobody could have possibly imagined. No one could have come up with this. And God has been preparing it all along. And so, verse 10 now, he turns and begins to help us to think now about more closely with the Spirit. The Spirit's working is the only way that anyone can understand the Spirit's revelation in the Scriptures. The Spirit's working is the only way that anyone can understand the Spirit's revelation in the Scriptures. These things, verse 10, these things. What things? The godly wisdom imparted by, Saul, by Paul. The secret, hidden wisdom of God. The word of the cross. Christ crucified. The gospel. That's the these things that he's talking about. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. And so there's been a revelation. Sometimes people talk about, they use that word very flippantly as Christians. God revealed to me this, that, or the other. Friends, the only thing that God reveals in that sense is the Scriptures, and he's already done that. And so we can dispense of using that word in that sense because God has revealed himself in the scriptures. And when he chooses to reveal himself to you through the hearing of the gospel, when you actually believe and you make a conscious decision to trust him, he has revealed to your, himself to you through the scriptures by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what Paul is saying here 
These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. We have, Paul is writing right now this letter to this church, but it is for us the Scriptures. It is God's inspired, authoritative, inerrant Word that has been maintained and preserved for us that we might still have it. To the Corinthians, it is a letter of encouragement. It is a letter of correction. It is a letter of uh, bringing them back to the truths of the gospel. But it is that for us too. And so these, these scriptures that we have before us, this Bible, this is the text that God has given to us by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit inspiring human authors to write words that fit their particular context, cultures, scenarios, whatever else. And it's all amalgamated together to be one unified revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ to us so that we might know him and have salvation. That's what the Bible is. And that's what he's talking about. Verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. And he, Paul adds this in at the end of the verse. The Spirit's a trustworthy guide. The Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. You want to you be able to grasp and understand the deep things about who God is? Who are you going to trust in? Who's going to be your guide for that? We trust in all kinds of really silly things to try to go after that. But none other than the Spirit of God must be our guide. But we would be in danger of just saying, well, I just trust the Spirit. Wow, that sounds really impressive and spiritual when you say it that way. Well, how do you trust the Spirit in that way? Well, the Spirit speaks to me through the Word because He has revealed Himself. God has revealed Himself. Paul just said it. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. There it is. Here it is. It's right in front of us. And so when I trust the Spirit, I'm going to look to what the Spirit has already revealed. Why would I look anywhere else? Because this is what the Spirit has revealed. God, in His infinite, perfect wisdom, has decided to reveal Himself as He has deemed fit. And here it is. So why would I go looking around for anywhere else? Yes, let's talk about trusting the Spirit. But don't tell me anything about trusting the Spirit if your nose isn't in the Word. Because that's like saying, I trust the Spirit, but I don't want to listen to what He said. I'm getting off into rabbit trails here. Let me bring, back, bring us back to the text. Paul's going to establish this point, this whole idea of the Spirit being a good guide. Verse 11, For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Paul gives us insight here into a bit of biblical philosophy. Philosophy is not a bad word insofar as it's biblical. But very often it's not. But this is what Paul is talking about because he's getting us a window into something really profound. The spirit of a person is who best knows that person because that spirit is, in a sense, who that person is. You have a spirit. It's not the Holy Spirit. That's not what I'm talking about. You have a spirit as a person. And who knows you best than your spirit? unless you publicly talk about who you are, right? So you, you, you best know yourself. In the same way, second part of the verse, also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. He's taking us somewhere. He's, again, per, uh, building off of what he said at the end of verse 10. The Spirit is a trustworthy guide. But he's using something that is known in uh, circles of study about these kinds of things as like is known by like. So you know yourself because you are yourself, <laughs> right? No one else knows you better than yourself except for God. But in our understanding here, right, you know yourself because you are yourself, I hope. If you are confused about that, we have other work to do. But if you are yourself this morning, then you know yourself. In the same way, the Spirit of God is God. And so who better to know God than the Spirit of God? Right? Clear? Okay, good. The fascinating thing about this whole thing that Paul is doing, this like is known by like, it is 
It's actually a concept in Greek philosophy. And you're like, I don't care about that. That's fine. But the Corinthians did. Because Paul is saying there's something true, even in all this philosophy that you're so interested in, that you go and listen to all these speakers talk about, there's something true in that. You ever heard the maxim, all truth is God's truth? The fact that there are people in tribes and all kinds of places who actually say true things, well, that comes from God. All truth is God's truth. So the fact that they're referencing some little thing that's, this is true, like is known by like. You yourself are yourself and you know yourself. In the same way, God is God and God knows God because he's God. Pretty simple. What's he saying? This is the spirit that you have received. Verse 12. You have not received the spirit of the world, friends, but the spirit who is from God. So you have, Christians, you have the most trustworthy guide in literally all of creation, in all of the universe, in all of existence. You have the most trustworthy guide dwelling inside of you to know God. But look what it says, the end of the verse, end of verse 12. What's the reason? See the that right there? That is really big. It's not just an empty word. It tells us why. That we might understand the things freely given us by God. Well, what are the things freely given us by God? Look back at verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, the Scriptures. Why did the Spirit, why is the Spirit given to us? So that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. So absolutely, God has spoken by His Spirit, and it is recorded for us in the Scriptures. But we also get Whenever you teach a Sunday school lesson, whenever you stand in front of people and talk about the Lord, whenever you spend your time wanting to teach uh, the, the Scriptures in any way, shape, or form, you are still doing what Paul says and relying on the Scriptures, or rather rely, yeah, relying on the Scriptures, but relying on the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. He is conveying these things by the power of the Spirit. Paul's message and his method come together with the Holy Spirit's power to show forth God's wisdom and power. Now, verse 14. There are some who do not understand this. There are some who are not in this position. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. There are many who do not and are not able to understand the things freely given to us by God. In other words, they are not able to understand the scriptures. And many of you this morning, I'm sure, could attest to the fact that before you were a believer, if you ever tried to read the Bible, or if anyone ever tried to convey to you things from the Bible, you didn't get it. And was that because that you just didn't like bring your rational juices together enough so that you might really understand it? No. It's because You were at that point a natural person. You were not a believer. You were not yet a Christian. You didn't understand it. Neither did I. I can tell you that by experience. I didn't get it. And this natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. Where where have we seen that before? Look back at verse uh, 18 of chapter 1. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. This is the natural person who is perishing. They're not a believer yet. They haven't understood the Scriptures because they do not have the Spirit, because they're not believers. And so they don't accept it. They're folly. This is foolishness. And if you find yourself in this position today, friend, I want to tell you, you don't have to stay in that position. The very reason that you're here today may be so that you can hear this truth. And today might be the day that God intends for you to hear now. And the Spirit opens your eyes and opens your ears, and you don't even know that that's happening. All that you know is now you hear it and you say, that's true, I believe that, I want that. That's the Holy Spirit, friends. And so, trust, believe, do what God says, and what God calls you to do is that you confess that you are a sinner and that you are in need of a Savior, and you can't save yourself. God is holy, and He doesn't desire for you to live in sin. He doesn't desire for you to continue to be a sinner separated from him. 
And he has provided the only thing that will make any provision enough for you to be able to be saved, and that is his own son. He's given his son for you, that he came and lived perfectly as you were intended to live. He came to die sacrificially for you as your sin deserves, and he rose victoriously again for you on the third day so that sin and death could be defeated. And what he calls for you to do is to turn away from your sin and to trust in him. And today might be that day for you. You don't have to stay thinking that this is foolishness. Maybe you thought it for so long before. But you don't have to stay there. The natural person, though, if he continues in that way, he perishes. And there will be a day for all of us that we stand before our Creator. Whether you believe it or not, it's true. You see, we live in such an age now that we think that we can define what's true or not based on what we believe. But that's not true. (laughs) And you don't actually believe that. You don't operate based on truth is just what I believe. Because if I said, well, I don't think your truth is right. My truth is more true than your truth. (laughs) It just falls apart. It's ridiculous. It doesn't hold up. The reality is this is true, whether you believe it or not. And God has given it for you that you might hear it even today and be encouraged in it. But this is the state of the natural person. They do not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. He's not able to understand them. He's not able to understand the Scriptures because they are spiritually discerned. You need the Spirit. The end of verse 12, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. You need the Spirit in order to discern the things freely given to us by God. The Scriptures, you need them. Until the Spirit works, the natural person has an inability to understand the word of the cross. Let me give you a few places that you can look at later yourself. I'm just going to read these to you. Listen to these few verses. John 6, 63. Jesus said, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Pretty plain. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. For Paul's case, it's not your own rational ability. It's not your effort. It's not your amazing skill to understand. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Or Jesus talks about the Spirit's work in John 14, 26. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then later in chapter 15, verse 26, the helper, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So earlier it was, he'll teach you all things, bring to your remembrance all that I've said. Now it's he'll bear witness about me. Then in John 14, verse 17, Jesus talks about the Spirit here, and the, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. Then, showing the distinction between the natural person and what Paul's going to talk about, the spiritual person, in verse 15 of our text. I'm not done. John 16, verses 13 and 14, Jesus says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit's job is constantly to be glorifying Jesus, to be pointing us back to who Jesus is. That's his job. And so Paul, or rather Jesus says, that's what's to be expected when the Spirit comes. Paul testifies to Titus of the Holy Spirit's part in salvation. He says in Titus 3, verse 5, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. There it is. The Holy Spirit is the one who regenerated us and renewed us so that we might be saved. Finally, I'll have you look with me and turn with me at this one, Galatians. Look over with me at Galatians chapter 3. We were just here recently, but it's so plain that Paul is so helpful in this way to help us think about this. Galatians 3, starting in verse 1. The problem in the Galatian churches is that they were relying on works of the law. They thought that that was how they were going to be saved, not trusting in Christ. And so he says... Verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you 
It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? There it is. Having begun by the Spirit. How did you begin, Christians? You began by the Spirit. Who turned the lights on? The Holy Spirit. So it's not by works of the flesh, and you're not being now perfected by the flesh. Did you suffer so many things, verse 4, in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the answer is hearing with faith. Paul makes it plain here in so many places. Jesus made it plain for us. The work of the Spirit is the only thing that can bring the natural person out of being the natural person. Because the inverse, look at the opposite. Back in our text, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 15. Now he's going to contrast the natural person with someone else. Verse 15. The spiritual person, there's the opposite. Someone who is indwelt by the Spirit. A believer, a Christian. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. Because the things of the Spirit are spiritually discerned, which he just said in verse 14, those who have the Spirit can understand them. Because the things of the Spirit are spiritually discerned, Those who have the Spirit can understand the things of the Spirit, right? Makes sense? And so that's what Paul is saying. So that they might be able to discern, judge, understand them, so that they can ultimately know God. The spiritual person judges all things. He's able to take you and I as if you are such a person, if you are a believer this morning, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you, you are able to judge all things, discern all things. It doesn't mean you know everything. It doesn't mean you can understand everything. But it does mean you can understand what God has revealed in the Scriptures. And the second part of this verse, is himself to be judged by no one, has been just misused by so many in the history of the church. It's often used in a way that says that because you're a Christian, nobody can ever question you. (laughs) That's not what it's saying. It is saying, remember what he's talking about all along throughout this. It's the contrast between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. He's saying, the wisdom of the world cannot come and question you, Christian, and say, that's foolishness. That doesn't make any sense. Of course, the Corinthians would be facing this over and over and over again. Those who are worldly wise coming and saying, this is foolish what you're believing, and you need to listen to some more of our speakers who talk about real good solid Greek wisdom that, you know, we've founded on for a long time and our culture is so rooted in, right? It's no different than now, that the world would come and tell us that everything that you believe, Christians, is so backwards and weird and doesn't make any sense and you're wrong. But when we come back to looking to the Scriptures, trusting in the work of the Spirit in us to understand it, even in, a, in the community of God's people, that we are helped by one another to understand And we can rest assured on the rock of God's own truth and not be called out by the world and start to be, we need to start deconstructing our faith or something. We don't need to do that because we can rest on the truth of God's word. That's what it's talking about, is himself to be judged by no one. There's nobody in the world that can come and tell you this is wrong and this isn't right and you shouldn't believe this or this is foolishness or whatever else because the the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Of course they tell you that. And this is the thing we have to remind ourselves, friends. Of course the world acts like the world. We shouldn't be surprised by that. You shouldn't be mad about that. You shouldn't be frustrated about that. You should be doing exactly what God has called us to do, which is to take the saving message of Jesus Christ into the world that doesn't know him, that is lost. We were called to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe everything that Jesus has commanded, not get mad at them because they don't understand. How unloving is that? Even the person that is so adamantly against everything that you believe, they are exactly like you were apart from Christ. What separates you from them? It's God's work. It's God saving you. I I, I know the temptation of this, especially lately. Right? We all feel it. But we need to be led by compassion and God's own mercy, and not, frankly, the fact that we think we're just right. Because God's right. And we need to bring people to bear to that truth, not to us being right. And so, verse 16. Here he again quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13. 
who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him. That's a continuation of this idea, his himself to be judged by no one, the spiritual person, right? Who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? You can't call out the Lord (laughs) who has understood it in order to instruct him. You're never putting yourself in a position to tell, you know, God, uh, let me just tell you a little bit about how you ought to be doing things or how you need to be. No, that's ridiculous. And that's the idea of that phrase. But we, the end of the verse there, we have the mind of Christ. And this simply means we have the Spirit. Brings us back to, right, yourself knows yourself because you're yourself. The Spirit of God knows God because he's God, and you have the Spirit of God, therefore you have the mind of Christ. If you have the Spirit of God, you have the mind of Christ. Now, does that, that does not mean, not like the matrix, is that just when you're saved that you suddenly know everything about God, possibly. No, but is that now you have access to the mind of Christ, and you have that through the Spirit, through the Word. There's no other channel that you're going to tap in to the mind of Christ or the Spirit of God but through the Word. Because the Word is the Spirit's own ministry to us. So in closing, let me remind you of the statement that I rephrased. The focus of Christian ministry, and Paul shows us this, the focus of Christian ministry ought to be the preaching of the gospel, the word of the cross, by relying on the illuminating and saving power of the Holy Spirit. So a few closing thoughts. Not only has God, by the person of the Holy Spirit, provided us divine revelation, the Scriptures. He did that, remember, through the inspiration of human authors. But the Holy Spirit is the one, the only one, who can provide illumination necessary to understand this revelation. And he does that for us believers from the point that we first hear the gospel and repent and believe all the way on through the rest of our Christian lives. And so as we focus our attention on the gospel for our own growth and edification, we need, friends, to give our thanks and praise to God the Holy Spirit for what he's done. You can thank the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been so, uh, for Christians like us, churches like us, there's been so much abuse against the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit that sometimes we just get fearful, I think, to talk about the Holy Spirit. But he's God, friends. And he is a person. He's not a force. He's not a thing. He's not an it. He's God. He's a person. And he dwells, Christians, inside of you and I. And he does amazing, praiseworthy work, and we ought to give him praise for that. We ought to give him thanks for that. Every time you open the Bible and know what it says, you ought to give him praise. Every time you open the Bible before you get into it, you ought to ask the Holy Spirit to fill you up, to help you to understand. Because you are entirely, you and I are entirely reliant on the Spirit to help us to continue to understand what God has revealed. And so when we focus on this, the, the gospel in these ways in our own private lives, we need to be focused on the Holy Spirit, giving Him thanks, praying for His help, and doing so regularly. As we focus on the gospel as the main message of our personal ministries to those people around us, in our family, in our friends, whatever, you need to be praying, friends, for the Holy Spirit's power to attend your sharing of the gospel. You see, do not rely too heavily on your ability to say the right words. Say the gospel, say what it is, give the message, and pray that the Spirit will light that on fire inside of their hearts. Because that's His job, not ours. And you need to pray in that way, that the Spirit would awaken people. Jesus said, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Pray that the Spirit would give life as you share the gospel. I think that is a huge missing component of sometimes my own thoughts as I share with other people and of ours collectively. We need to pray that the Spirit would bring those whom we are sharing with to life as they hear the gospel. We must pray that God would open the eyes of the spiritually blind and open the ears of the spiritually deaf. The natural people that are around us, the natural person with whom we are sharing, they need the Spirit of God so that they might be awakened and opened and ready to hear the gospel. And we need to pray in that way. As you take part in any gospel ministry, we need to rely on the Holy Spirit to do the work the Father and the Son has sent Him to do. Remember what I said from John 14, 15, and 16? He's going to bear witness to God and to Christ. He's going to impart the truth. He's going to guide into truth. He's going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He's going to glorify the Father and the Son. That's all the Holy Spirit's work. That's not all of it, but that's all what he does. 
And so we need to rely on him to do what he does. And we need to think in those categories and pray in those categories. Finally, as we pray for the gospel ministry of our own church and of our own missionaries and other churches that we love and fellowship with, we want to pray for the Holy Spirit's great power to be brought to bear on the regular proclamation of God's word. We want to pray that God would light up the regular proclamation of his word because Paul has demonstrated to us that by delivering the message of the gospel, by the method that God has intended, it is a display of God's power and wisdom. And we know now today from this text that it is the Holy Spirit that makes that possible. And so praise, literally, praise God that he has given us his spirit. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do praise you and thank you for your work. We thank you not only, Father, for sending your Son. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you have done on our behalf in living and dying and resurrecting for us, praying for us now, even as we wait upon your return. But we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are the one who gives life. We thank you that you opened our eyes. We thank you that you continue to illuminate the scriptures to us that we might understand and grow closer to God and to know him better. I pray for those folks here today, Lord, that might be searching for you in some way and they feel that you might be drawing them, you might be just starting to make sense to them in some way. I pray that they would hear the truth. I pray that they would turn away from their sin and that they would believe in the gospel. And I pray for Christians here this morning that we would be encouraged and emboldened to give you praise, uh, Lord, for what you have done for us and to continue to give the Spirit praise for what you do as you help us to understand the Scriptures. So be with us now, Lord, as we depart. Dismiss us with your blessing. We love you and we pray in Christ's name. 